This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. I'm James, as those guys said, um, I lead the team here. I'm so thrilled to have you. We're in, as they said, Redig the Well series. If you've got a Bible, we're going to go back into Genesis 26. If you haven't, Hopefully it'll all appear on the screen. I um, had prepared one sermon and then totally rewrote it. So they only got the slides uh, this morning. So hopefully uh, it'll be, be there, but I'll go through as we go anyway. We're in this um, series really asking the questions, why do we do what we do? And not just the why, but the how. How do we do the stuff that God's caused to? And we're asking these kind of questions. And we've just been prophetically led to Genesis 26 and uh, and today, as I said, we wrote one sermon and then felt yesterday to totally scrap it. And just um, felt God leading me again just to come and look again at our purpose and our priorities and then how that shapes the things that we do, our, our practices. And, and I want to look at this story in Genesis 26 again that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It's a, it's a small part of the big story. That stretches from Genesis through to Revelation, and it's the story of the mission of God, and, and it's the story of the mission of God that fills the gaps between the scattering of the nations in Genesis 12 and then the, the healing of the nations in Revelation 22, and particularly how we live, and this is the key bit, how we live in that gap. And I appreciate that for some of you, perhaps many of you, there's an element of, uh, if you've listened to me preach for a while, frustration or impatience perhaps in the sense of, okay, we get it. We're talking about story again. Stop talking about story. Just tell me when my meeting's going to start. <laughs> and I, I, and I kind of get that. But truthfully, if I'm really honest with you, therein lies part of the challenge you know, I feel that we as a church face at the moment as we move forwards. Why asking that question and answering it, why do we do what we do? And how, more importantly, how do we do it? I, and we're in this season, as we said, and it even came again prophetically this morning. I feel that the Lord is reshaping some things here. And we need to fight against the impulse just to slide back and revert back to the familiar, to that which we know and feel comfortable with even. And by revisiting story again and again and again, looking at the story of God, we get this story into us, into our bones and into our minds and into our hearts and it reminds us again of our purpose and our priorities and how we now live. And, and I think it does that, way, that in at least two ways. Firstly, it, as we immerse ourselves into the, the biblical story, it, it undermines and challenges, if you like, our kind of impulse to consume and to spectate. We, in the Western world, are consumers. We like things or dislike things. We, we spectate. We kind of, uh, what suits me, what suits us, it's about me and my felt needs, but as we immerse ourselves in the biblical story, we realize it's really not about me. It's really not about my felt needs and my preferences. I realize that actually, just as Megan wonderfully said it, you can't do it on your own. We actually need other people. And we also realize the more we immerse ourselves in the pages of scripture, we can't actually just do it in meetings either. Sunday meetings, as important as they are, this cannot be the sum and the totality of our Christian experience. And the second reason why story matters is that well, this story matters, is that it begins to give shape to our lives. The commands from Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, that just feels, if you just stop for a moment, impossibly huge. Like, where do I even start? What's my role? And those are the kind of questions we're seeking God. What's my role? That prophetic thing now that we just heard from then, 
What, what role do I have? And we want to hear the, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit in that. If you want to be spirit-led, you've got to be word-fed. And so there's, we've got to get back into this story because it begins to shape us again. Begins to put some meat on the bones of what my part looks like. We realize we're not consumers, we're participants. We're actors, if you like, not fakers in that sense. But we're acting our lives out within this big story. And we begin as we read it to and shape, allow it to shape our lives to see how we fit in. So back to Genesis 26, and here in these just few verses, I want to look from verse 22, we're sort of this kind of link, if you like, or the interwoven nature of worship and mission and um, nations and blessing and, and glory. And uh, as you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Abraham had previously dug wells. Isaac needed to redig some of them and some new ones. And he's in a difficult situation, a difficult context. He's facing famine as well as opposition with enemy clans. Let's pick it up in verse 22 of, of Genesis 26, chapter, 20, chapter 26. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. This story is... um, it's a bit like, I guess, in miniature, a picture of the big story that we are part of. Roll all the way through into the, into the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is about to be stoned. And he makes this speech explaining why he's lived his life, why he has, as he has, why he has given himself, why he's prepared to die in this moment. And he retells the story. And there's a little verse uh, in verse 2, little phrase that he uses in, in chapter 7 in that speech. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And later in, in, in his same speech, in the same talk, he describes God as the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's our God, and he is a God of glory. And this God of glory appears to Isaac. And in these few verses that we just looked at in Genesis 26, we see how that shapes what he does his priorities, and the big purpose behind it all. You see, Isaac, just like his father Abraham before him, dug wells, built altars to worship, went to new places, and received blessings, all for one thing, the glory of God and the sake of the nations. From the beginning to end, this story that shapes our lives is a story all about the glory of God, God created us for his glory, and he will not share his glory with anyone else. Ephesians 1 tells us he he chose us before the foundations of the world for his glory. God called Abraham for his glory. He called Israel for his glory. Despite the fact that continually from Adam and Eve onwards, we've messed up and we have not given God the glory that he's due his name, he still has zeal and passion for his own glory. And in his mercy, he does not treat us, all that we were enjoying at the beginning of worship today, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Why? In order that he might show more of his glory. Isaiah 48, verse 9, he says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. 
Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, says the Lord, I will not give to another. Throughout the biblical story, we see it again and again. Old Testament, New Testament, it's about the glory of God. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea for his glory. He spared disobedient Israel again and again. Why? For the glory of his name. He gave them victory again and again in places like Canaan. Why? For the glory of his name. He even restored Israel from exile. When they'd been exiled, he brought them back. Why? For the glory of his name and we look into the New Testament and Jesus came and Jesus sought to do everything for the glory of his father in everything that he did he he tells us Matthew 5 he tells us to do good works why so that people might see the glory of God he says that if you don't seek God's glory then faith is impossible and without faith it's impossible to please God it's about the glory of God Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the glory of God. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit about? To glorify. John 16, 14 tells us the Son of God. It's about the glory of God. 1 Corinthians um, uh, 10, 31, Paul tells us whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever it is, what do we do it for? For the glory of God. Romans 1, when it talks about mankind's sin and rebellion, says we're all under judgment. What for? For dishonoring the glory of God. God forgives our sin for his own sake, for his glory. And that passage you looked at in Isaiah 48, he defers his anger. He restrains it. Why? For his glory. Jesus is coming again in glory and on clouds, but he's coming again to be glorified by us, it tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1. God's plan ultimately is to fill the earth with the knowledge of what? His glory. As the waters cover the sea. In the, New Test- in, the, in the end of the New Testament, the end of the story, in the New Jerusalem, right at the very end, what is it that replaces the sun? It's the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six tells us that everything that happens, everything that happens will rebound for the glory of God. From beginning to end, it's about the glory of God. God created us to know him to be with him, to enjoy him and his glory. He says right at the beginning, right at the very beginning, the first words to man, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Why? So there might be more to share and experience and know and enjoy him and experience the fullness of his glory. Yet in our rebellion, in our sin, everything gets broken. But what man broke, God sets about fixing and restoring. And he makes these promises to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Moses and then throughout the Old Testament. He says, despite your sin, despite your rebellion, despite your stiff neckedness, despite everything, I will be your God and you will be my people. Verse 24 of Genesis 26, he says, fear not for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. Why? For his glory. And what is for his glory is for our good. You know that what is for his glory is for our good. You know, this is the mission of God. It's a mission of reconciliation. It's a mission of restoration. This was the calling on Israel throughout the Old Testament. It's always been about God gathering for himself, a people for himself, for for his glory and for our good, a people from 
all nations, every tribe and every tongue to know him. And the Old Testament abounds with the hope of the nations. Again and again, exhortations that God's glory would be declared and would be praised among the nations of the world. Promises that one day the nations will worship the true God. Prayers are prayed again and again and again that God would be praised among the nations. And by nations, we mean peoples. We mean the families of the earth. That's the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Through you, the families of the earth, the nations, the peoples will be blessed. And as the story progresses, Jesus arrives and takes center stage, the key moment where people now from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, Gentiles as well as Jews, they can now find their way into the story to know God, to be known by God, to enjoy him now and forever. And God made, gave his son to make all of that possible through faith alone. For sinners like you and I, whatever our background, whatever the mess, whatever the brokenness we bring, for sinners to be forgiven, justified, and transformed into saints so that they can have full and everlasting pleasure in God. That's what we're part of. That's what this is all about. Jesus, after his resurrection, just before his ascension in Luke 24, he says this in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The whole point of the cross is that people from all nations can be reconciled back to God. Jesus, when he gave the great commission, says the same thing again. He says, now you go Now you go and you make disciples of all nations. And then the wonderful little phrase at the end, and he says, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. You know, the promises of God being with us are tied to us going to make disciples of all nations. You know that, right? The promises of God to be with us are tied to us going and making disciples of all nations. That's what we're caught up in. That is right now, I know some of us sitting there thinking, Brr. no, that is, this is what we're caught up in. That's the multiplication stuff from the beginning, Genesis 1 and from Genesis 26. It's the same promise. As you go and do it, God says to Isaac, and God speaks to us, fear not, for I am with you. As you go and be a blessing. Do you know that's what all the blessing stuff is about as well? Psalm 67 that wonderful bit, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. And there's a little pause there, Selah. Just means pause, reflect, wonder in that truth. Oh, God is gracious to me and blesses me and makes his face shine upon me. Woo! Verse 2, it's linked. You are blessed so that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let the, all the peoples praise you. You know, God blesses you. God blesses us so that nations, peoples, will be blessed. He blessed Isaac for the sake of the nations and he blesses us the same. You know what? Going forward, the future of our church, God will most likely, on the basis of his word, bless us as we are planning to be a blessing for the nations. Want to receive more blessing from God? More we need to pour ourselves out for the sake of nations of the world. And this blessing is not because we've done something. 
The blessing is power and joy for a mission to accomplish. That's what it is. It's the fuel to do the stuff that he's called us to do. It's the thing that propels us forward and enables us to play our part. Let's go back into Genesis 26 and just look at very practically what Isaac does. Verse 25. So he built an altar there and he called upon the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Isaac digs wells. He digs wells. He works. He provide, in digging wells, he's providing the means for his people to live. They need water, and it's work in order to get it. That's what they need to do. He, he gives himself to provide for his people. He works. And in doing so, he's also building community. Don't forget, everything we looked at a couple of weeks ago, wells were symbols of thriving communities. So he's working, and he's building community. He gives himself to very, very normal things of life. All of us work in some way, shape, or form. Whether you're paid for it or not is irrelevant. What we do with our time, with the skills we have, with the gifts we've got, that's work. And we do it to the glory of God. And as we do it, we build community. We do things for the sake, for the good of others. Whether it's making money for this or fixing that or doing whatever it is, it's for the good of other people. He digs wells. And he builds altars to worship. He creates communities to the glory of God. But because it's to the glory of God, it's also a community that is devoted to worship. He digs wells and he builds altars that the community might be a worshipping people. And then he pitches his tent there too. He lived there. He lived there in that place. It's all outworked, all of it. Community, worship, work. Life, it's all outworked in a particular place at a particular time. And you know what? It's all on display. His work, his worship, his community, his life, where he lives, it's all on display. He doesn't segregate into neat boxes. That's such a Western thing. That's what we do. I've got my work over here. I've got my family over here. I've got my fun stuff over here. And depending on how big those things are, that box might be big or small. I've got my church stuff over here. And it's all segregated. No, 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 no. It's all on display. It's all interwoven, it's all integrated, it's all there, visible. His life, every single piece of it, lived out on display, a demonstration of a life lived for the glory of God. He digs wells, he builds altars of community, he pitches his tent. And the other thing we see there, he calls upon the name of the Lord. He prays. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And the result of all of these things being out on display, well, Abimelech, who was formerly his enemy, we were going to carry on reading a few verses later, we'd see that this guy who was previously his enemy, was giving him loads of grief, his heart changes. Abimelech recognizes the Lord's presence with Isaac. He sees something different in how he lives his life. And he sees what a result of a life lived to the glory of God looks like. It looks blessed. And he's attracted to it and his heart is changed and transformed. And nations, people, Abimelech is not from his people. He's from a nation. He's from another people. People get blessed. And their lives get changed. Lives get transformed. Reaching the nations. Advancing through prayer. Fueled by worship. It's no secret formula. It's not anything particular fancy or complicated. It's just really fairly normal, everyday kind of stuff. Lived out for the glory of God. You know, when we're all about the glory of God, our priority shifts from what suits me 
what suits my comfort, my felt needs, and it's replaced with an attitude and a heart of worship. And when you're passionate about worship, you're passionate about mission, because worship is the end goal of mission. There are not yet enough worshipers. That's why we're serious about mission, because so more people need to be told about and introduced to and be known by Jesus and have their lives transformed by Jesus in order that they might become worshipers themselves. When you're passionate about worship and you're passionate about the glory of God, it changes the way you approach every area of your life. Worship doesn't start with what we do on a Sunday here. Worship starts in our hearts, but it always works its way out into visible actions in our lives. Through the way we work, we worship. Through the way we build community, we worship. Through our thoughts and our attitudes, through our love for God, obviously first and foremost, but also for people in the places where we live. Through our faith, through our actions, through our speech, through our grace-motivated serving, through our giving, through our prayer, through our faithful witness in a particular place over time. This is the life of faith. All of it on display the good, the bad, the ugly, the mundane, the messy. It's not confined to a Sunday meeting where we put on our Sunday best and put on our game face and come to a meeting. And, hey, yeah, I'm all right, thanks, yeah. This is not the sum of the life of faith. It's not confined to when we get our Christian game face on and drive to our community meeting on a Wednesday night and go, I've got a 15, 20-minute drive depending on how far away my community is. And if it's only two minutes, I'll just drive around lots of times. So deal with all my stuff so I can present my best version of me for 90 minutes, hold it all together, give the right answers, and then, good, next week I'll do it again. That's not the life of faith. It's not confined to when we're in mission mode. Ooh opportunity to evangelize put on the life of faith now and talk to Jesus I mean I've been terrible all week but this is my opportunity now no that's not how it works to have a passion for the glory of God is to be passionate about the things he is the nations peoples of the earth the least the last the lost and it's to live on his mission with others in every part of your life every single day in the good moments, the rubbish moments, and all the boring ones in between. Making the most out of every moment in the places where you live and you work and you play. Who was the most on-mission person in all of history? Right, it can only be Jesus. Right? It can only be Jesus. He did nothing that wasn't for the glory of God. He did nothing that didn't serve the mission. How did he do it? Well, he lived in a particular place at a particular time within the context of community. When we look at the Jesus and the 12, we so often focus on the more religious kind of stuff that they did, preaching and the healing and the casting out of demons and all that. And we should, obviously, but we shouldn't also forget the common shared life together that they had. They didn't just preach, heal, cast out demons, go home. Meet again at this point and repeat it again. No, they ate together, they traveled together, they shared life together. They had a very, very normal life. And it was together centered around Jesus. And therefore, because it was centered around Jesus, it took on significance in and of itself. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't heal the sick and cast out demons and that kind of stuff. I'm saying there is a totality of the 12's life that was a life of shared faith together in their moments of well digging, in their moments of community building, in their moments of worship, in their moments of whatever it is, the normal stuff that we fill our lives with. 
That's what Jesus and the 12 did. That's what the early church did. That's what we must continue to. Whatever our wells look like, it's for the glory of God. Worshippers, for the glory of God. In community, for the glory of God. On mission in the places where we live, work, and play for the glory of God. And it's going to look different in different places. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about, and months, we've been talking about personal, patient, and, and local, and we'll continue to do so. We're not talking about it as some kind of growth strategy, but as a way of freshly exploring and rethinking what it means to be communities of believers gathered and rooted in particular places, reaching, loving, and serving more people. What it is to be blessed, to be a blessing. What it is to use the combined blessing of, that God has given us, whether that's materially or whatever, for the good of others on a mission of reconciliation and renewal. This is not about, and I, some get frustrated, just tell us exactly how to do this and where it looks. Well, it's not, it's not about creating a model that says, well, that's working over there. Let's copy it and just do it over there. You can't franchise the kingdom of God. When we see scripture... There are certainly some repeatable characteristics of the kingdom, but the whole new wineskin stuff in Mark 2, it's the nature of God to constantly be doing a new thing. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because they burst and they break. So we need some new wineskins. And that will look different in different places. It cannot be top down. Here's how it's going to work where you live. Because I don't live where you live. I'm not in the same digging wells area that you are. I'm not in the same community context that you are. You are where you are with people like you who are also like you where you are. That's your context. They go, what does it look like here in this place where we live right now? I do want to say this. Whilst it's not going to be top down, in this next chapter of our story, I honestly feel like the, the primary mission work is not fundamentally about attracting people to our church building and our meetings, but rather cultivating together the resurrection life of Jesus by selflessly and deeply loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and loving our neighbors the same and even our enemies in the places where we live. We are rooted, each of us, in particular places. The places where we live, the streets we walk, the schools our kids go to school in, the places we eat in, play in, all of those things. And we do these things Digging the wells and community and all that kind of stuff in proximity to others. We are a distinctively local expression of the global body of Christ. It's love for how the message version talks about Jesus coming. It says in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what he did. He became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. Now, who is his flesh and blood today? It's us, the people of God. We've moved into the neighborhood. What Jesus began to do, we, by the power of his spirit, continue to do in community together. And if you're a born-again believer, you have this supernatural instinct in you now, yearning, where you desperately want community and to be on mission to the glory of God. And yet, at the same time, because we're in the flesh, we have this aversion to it. And it's like these competing tensions. I really want that, but man, that's going to make it uncomfortable for me. It's going to make it difficult for me. I think I prefer just rocking up for 90 minutes where I don't have to do much and then tick that box and go home. But we know we're made for more. 
We look at Acts 2 and we think, I know that I am made for more. They experience, I long to experience that stuff. So we have this, I know, this yearning, but we also have this aversion to it because it's uncomfortable sometimes. To be in community together on mission, just, not just about attending a community. I know it's confusing because we call our small groups communities, right? I get that. We probably should have not, but we've run out of names because we've called them everything under the sun for 40-something years. So communities was the one we hadn't used. And it's a better description. It's not a meeting. We're people together. It's not just about attending that, but to be in community, it takes time, it takes patience, and frankly, it takes persistence. It's hard work sometimes, isn't it? Let's be honest. But to be in community and to be on mission together is the Christian life. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. We are. Whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, if you're a believer, you are a witness to the resurrection life of Jesus in how you live and people are watching, whether they realize it or not either. So to what are we witnessing? To what are we giving witness? Really nice neighbors who are just really quiet for an hour and two hours on a Sunday morning because they leave, don't make any noise and then come back again. No, 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 no. COVID's given us a reset moment. What does my life bear witness to? What does my well digging, whatever that looks like for you, which is whatever you're doing this time tomorrow morning probably, what does that look like? What does my community, what, my, not the meeting I go to, but my community, who I spend my time with, who I invest my life in, who I hang around with, who I make space and time for, what does that bear witness to? Are they just people like me? Because you look at the 12, Jesus and the 12, right, they're all Jews, but they're pretty diverse, right? You had Matthew who was a tax collector for the Romans and you had Simon who was a zealot who hated the Romans and they hung out together. Church Antioch, where they were first called Christians, what did that look like? Massively diverse. They were a statement. They were witnesses. What does my worship say and look like about me and bear witness to? What does my prayer life bear witness to? What does my commitment to the place where I live bear witness to what does my life bear witness to what what's on display is it all on display or is it just in the neat boxes that need to be dismantled a bit is it a life for the glory of God so how do we get there well really quickly how do we move forward just two steps real quick first is we need to see it or get it for ourselves if you're a born-again believer, as I said a moment ago, we understand supernaturally that it's life is all for the glory of God. We get that. But it can often be, well, what do I do next? That kind of confuses us a little bit. And if we just think of it in terms of just attend a Sunday meeting and go to a community group on a Wednesday night and serve on a team and give some money, and those things are kind of simple, aren't they? They're sort of measurable. So they instinctively, oh, t- yes, tick, 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 I'm doing all the stuff. This kind of kingdom work of the kingdom, though, is, is somewhat less simple. It's somewhat less tangible. It's somewhat less measurable. And the thing is, it's actually a bit more exciting. Because if you just come along and you kind of know the same things are going to happen, the same, Christian life gets a bit predictable and, dare I say it, a bit boring, right? I mean, it's good to be back again because we had 18 months of not. And that's why it's exciting. Oh, we missed it. But if we're not careful, we just slide into a pattern of the Christian life is the same and it gets a bit dull. 
Being part of the body of Christ on earth should not be boring. Being part of the vehicle that God is using to gather the elect from every tribe and every tongue should not be boring. I mean, you can be bored right now because I'm speaking. I, I don't worry about that so much because Paul, who has got a slightly bigger profile than me, he was preaching so long someone fell out the window and died. They were that boring. Wally even prayed that over me this morning, that there would be resurrection life as he preached. I didn't want to say that the reason he had to bring him back to life is because he died because they were so bored with what the guy was saying. <laughs> but you, that's my point, right? Well, this church is boring. This is not the sum of church. Being part of the kingdom of God, it can, I mean, it can be overwhelming. It can be intimidating. It can be scary even. It can be, oh, I don't have a, it can be whatever you want. Boring, it cannot be because if it is, something is wrong. Each of us is called to play our part, to redig those wells, to build those worship altars in our own lives, to pitch our tents where we live, to get personal, to, get, to be patient, to get local, living your life out on display for the glory of God, playing your part in the story of God, using the gifts and talents that you have, that guess what, they're unique to you. And some of them don't really fit in nice, neat kind of how do we do church on a Sunday box. Well, we need to break out of that Sunday box because whatever gifts God has given you, you do it for the glory of God, which involves extending the kingdom. I can't really play my part because we're busy and we're doing this, that, and the other. Are you doing it for the glory of God? Go and do it for the glory of God and stop worrying so much about, well, I've got to do this and that. Because we're living our lives for the glory of God, not so we can tick a box to say we've done the church thing. This is what church is. It's what God's calling us to here. Not big numbers of bums on seats. We've kind of done that. But propelling the church, this local church, forward into the next generation and to the ends of the earth. Spirit-filled, disciple-making disciples, changing communities one person at a time. That's what the big story of God is as you immerse yourself in it. And it's our only future. Personal, patient, local. Some of us instinctively get it. It makes sense to us. We just want to get on with it. Well, just do it. Some of us are already doing it like, hello, like I was saying this in 2007. Well, God bless you. Keep going. Keep going. Keep your miles ahead. Some of us are just slowly kind of catching up and penny beginning to drop because we're a bit slower than you. Keep going. Some of us don't get it at all. I don't really understand what he's saying. That's okay too. Some of us kind of get it, but we just look at our lives and think, how does that work? You know, that's okay too. Here's the point, whoever you are. We need a vision for it ourselves, what this stuff might look like in our own lives. It can all feel a bit overwhelming, unsettling, confusing, intimidating perhaps, but the process of beginning to play our part in the story of the mission of God starts with an encounter with the one who made the statement, go and make disciples. That's how we get it. It starts with an encounter with God himself. Abraham had an encounter. Isaac had an encounter. Think about the apostle Paul. He has this life-changing encounter with Jesus in Acts 9 that leads to this deep friendship with this more mature believer called Barnabas that eventually leads to Paul beginning to his journey of planting churches all around the known world. Getting it, seeing it, and seeing how we can begin to play our part in it begins with an encounter with Jesus. It begins with time spent in the word, in the, immersed in the story of God. You know, the deeper we get in the story of God, the more it comes alive and the more our part becomes apparent. Time in conversation with the Spirit. What are you calling me to, Lord? But don't wait until you hear a voice. 
You don't need to always be hearing voices when we've got an awful lot of verses that tell us about getting on with it, the stuff that God has called you to. So we need to get in. Second thing is learning as we go. We often think the next step is planning, right? Particularly in a Western context. Now we've got to plan exactly how this might look and this might look and whatever. No, no, no. Next step really is just do it and learn as you go. It's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. They kind of had this vague idea as they left Antioch of what's going on and they sailed to Cyprus and they were soon involved in doing the works of ministry. And if you read through his, the, the, the story of Paul, he just different stuff in different places. I'm not entirely sure that was all because it was pre-planned entirely. Because he didn't have Google. He didn't know exactly what it was going to be like when he arrived there or what they'd be like. He rocked up. Oh, that didn't work. Let's do this. God leading us in this. Let's go for it. More personal. What's that look like? Who are the people I spend my time with? Are they all just like me? That probably needs to change. More local. Do I love the people where I live? Probably the first step in learning on that journey is to hang out with other people who live where you live. And go on this journey of exploring what that might look like together. More patient. It's not about me trying to get God to do something. God's already doing something. How do I join in with what he's doing? And we encounter Jesus and we learn as we go. For some of you, God might be stirring you again about fresh journey of church planting, maybe even overseas. Do you know what? Perfect time to make a response. Friday and Saturday night, all online, we have a European church planting conference You don't even need to leave your home to explore whether church planting in some other context might be for you. You can go on the New Ground website, Pioneer Europe Conference. It's all online. Go and do it. It's a real easy next step. I feel God stirring me in that moment. Go and explore. I'm just going to finish with this. I know I keep saying that, but preacher, isn't it? Final thing to say in this as we go. We are properly amateurs in this. Now, we've used, we use the word amateur in, in, this, in our context to mean unpaid or a bit rubbish. But the real, actually, the word amateur comes from the French word that, mean, that originally meant lover of or lovers. We're lovers of Jesus and the church that he's building and his mission. We're proper amateurs going on this. But we also need to be amateurs who grow as experts, not experts in culture, not experts in how to do any of this stuff, but experts in love and in truth and in holiness. And it doesn't hugely fit, but I just felt it kind of does. 2 Peter chapter 1. So I end with this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's what we are, we're partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be fruitful and effective? Give yourself to these things. 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed by his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the end goal. That's where we're going. We're going to join the multitudes from every tribe and every tongue. And there will be people there who think, I played some small part. Jesus did all the saving, the drawing, all the rest of it. But wow, I played some small part in reaching the nations for the glory of God as I lived my life out for the glory of God in every single bit I do. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be fruitful and effective. Thank you you are taking us on this journey of redigging the wells of what our lives look like. And I do just pray now, Lord, that you would, you would stir our hearts. I pray that you would stir our affections. You would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. That whatever our well digging activities are, whatever our community life looks like, whatever it means for us to be personal, patient and local, our Lord, you'd lead us on the adventure of knowing you more, of following you, and playing our part in the most exciting thing going on in the nations today, the ingathering of the elect from every tribe and every time. Strengthen us and fortify us, Lord. Break down those little barriers that we put up where we segregate our lives into nice, neat boxes. Change our thinking. We recognize all the stuff that our hearts really yearn for, a life together, on mission for the glory of God, in community, lived out in all the mess. Help us to see more clearly what that might look like. For those who are already miles ahead, go, go, go. <laughs> for those of us who are like, what? Oh, would we have an encounter with you? An encounter with you that changes us, transforms our thinking, causes us to live our lives for the glory of God in every sphere so that daily, daily, Lord, that words in Acts 2 daily you might be adding to those the number who are saved we ask it for your glory and our good in Jesus name Amen